0: WAR AND PEACE, BOOK Ten, CHAPTER Five. READ FOR Librivox.org, BY ANNA SIMON From Smolensk the troops continued to retreat, followed by the enemy. On the 10th of August the regiment Prince Andrew commanded was marching along the high road, past the avenue leading to Bald Hills. Heat and drought had continued for more than three weeks. Each day fleecy clouds floated across the sky and occasionally veiled the sun but toward evening the sky cleared again, and the sun set in reddish-brown mist. Heavy night dews alone refreshed the earth. The unreaped corn was scorched and shed its grain. The marshes dried up. The cattle lowed from hunger, finding no food on the sun-parched meadows. Only at night and in the forests, while the dew lasted, was there any freshness. But on the road, the high road along which the troops marched, There was no such freshness, even at night or when the road passed through the forest. The dew was imperceptible on the sandy dust, churned up more than six inches deep. As soon as day dawned, the march began. The artillery and baggage wagons moved noiselessly through the deep dust that rose to the very hubs of the wheels, and the infantry sank ankle-deep in that soft, choking, hot dust that never cooled, even at night. Some of this dust was needed— by the feet and wheels, while the rest rose and hung like a cloud over the troops, settling in eyes, ears, hair and nostrils, and worst of all, in the lungs of the men and beasts as they moved along that road. The higher the sun rose, the higher rose that cloud of dust, and through the screen of its hot, fine particles one could look with naked eye at the sun, which showed like a huge crimson ball in the unclouded sky. There was no wind, and the men choked in that motionless atmosphere. They marched with handkerchiefs tied over their noses and mouths. When they passed through a village, they all rushed to the wells and fought for the water, and drank it down to the mud. Prince Andrew was in command of a regiment, and the management of that regiment, the welfare of the men and the necessity of receiving and giving orders, engrossed him. The burning of Smolensk and its abandonment made an epoch in his life. A novel feeling of anger against the foe made him forget his own sorrow. He was entirely devoted to the affairs of his regiment, and was considerate and kind to his men and officers. In the regiment they called him Our Prince, were proud of him and loved him. But he was kind and gentle only to those of his regiment, to Timochin and the like, people quite new to him, belonging to a different world, and who could not know and understand his past as soon as he came across a former acquaintance or anyone from the staff he bristled up immediately and grew spiteful ironical and contemptuous everything that reminded him of his past was repugnant to him and so in his relations with that former circle he confined himself trying to do his duty and not to be unfair in truth everything presented itself in a dark and gloomy light to prince andrew especially after the abandonment of smolensk on the sixth of august He considered that it could and should have been defended, and after his sick father had had to flee to Moscow, abandoning to pillage his dearly beloved bald hills which he had built and peopled. But despite this, thanks to his regiment, Prince Andrew had something to think about entirely apart from general questions. Two days previously he had received news that his father, son and sister had left for Moscow, and though there was nothing for him to do at Bald Hills, Prince Andrew, with a characteristic desire to foment his own grief, decided that he must ride there. He ordered his horse to be saddled, and, leaving his regiment on the march, rode to his father's estate, where he had been born and spent his childhood. Riding past a pond where there used always to be dozens of women, chattering as they rinsed their linen or beaded with wooden beetles, Prince Andrew noticed that there was not a soul about, and that the little washing-wharf, torn from its place and half submerged, was floating on its side in the middle of the pond. He rode to the keeper's lodge. No one at the stone entrance gates of the drive, and the door stood open. Grass had already begun to grow on the garden paths, and horses and calves were straying in the English park. Prince Andrew rode up to the hothouse. Some of the glass panes were broken, and of the trees and tubs some were overturned, and others dried up. He called for Taras, the gardener, but no one replied. Having gone round the corner of the hot house to the ornamental garden, he saw that the carved garden fence was broken and branches of the plum trees had been torn off with the fruit. An old peasant whom Prince Andrew in his childhood had often seen at the gate was sitting on a green garden seat, plaiting a bast shoe. He was deaf and did not hear Prince Andrew ride up. He was sitting on the seat the old prince used to like to sit on, and beside him strips of bast were hanging on the broken and withered branch of a magnolia. Prince Andrew rode up to the house. Several limes in the old garden had been cut down, and a piebald mare and her foal were wandering in front of the house among the rose bushes. The shutters were all closed, except at one window which was open. A little serv-boy, seeing Prince Andrew, ran into the house. Alpetich, having sent his family away, was alone at Bald Hills and was sitting indoors reading the lives of the saints. On hearing that Prince Andrew had come, he went out with his spectacles on his nose, buttoning his coat, and, hastily stepping up, without a word, began weeping and kissing Prince Andrew's knee. Then, vexed at his own weakness, he turned away and began to report on the position of affairs. Everything precious and valuable had been removed to Bacchugahafa, seventy-quarters of grain had also been carted away the hay and the spring corn of which albertig said there had been a remarkable crop that year had been commandeered by the troops and mown down while still green the peasants were ruined some of them too had gone to bakgurava only a few remained without waiting to hear him out prince andrew asked when did my father and sister leave meaning when did they leave from moscow Albertich understanding the question to refer to their departure for opa replied that they had left on the seventh, and again went into details concerning the estate management, asking for instructions. "'Am I to let the troops have the oats and to take a receipt for them? We have still six hundred quarters left,' he inquired. "'What am I to say to him?' thought Prince Andrew, looking down on the old man's bald head, shining in the sun, and seeing by the expression on his face that the old man himself understood.' How untimely such questions were, and only asked them to allay his grief. "'Yes, let them have it,' replied Prince Andrew. "'If you noticed some disorder in the garden,' said Alpatich, "'it was impossible to prevent it. Three regiments have been here and spent the night, dragoons mostly. I took down the name and rank of their commanding officer, to hand in a complaint about it. "'Well, and what are you going to do? Will you stay here if the enemy occupies the place?' asked Prince Andrew. Alpatich turned his face to Prince Andrew, looked at him, and suddenly, with a solemn gesture, raised his arm. He is my refuge. His will be done, he exclaimed. A group of bareheaded peasants was approaching across the meadow toward the prince. Well, goodbye, said Prince Andrew, bending over to Alpatich. You must go away too. Take away what you can, and tell the serfs to go to the Ryazan estate, or to the one near Moscow. Alpatich clung to prince andrew's leg and burst into sobs gently disengaging himself the prince spurred his horse and rode down the avenue at a gallop the old man was still sitting in the ornamental garden like a fly impassive on the face of a loved one who is dead tapping the bast on which he was making the bast shoe. and two little girls running out from the hothouse carrying in their skirts plums they had plucked from the trees there came upon prince andrew on seeing the young master the elder one frightened clutched her younger companion by the hand and hid with her behind a birch-tree not stopping to pick up some green plums they had dropped prince andrew turned away with startled haste unwilling to let them see that they had been observed he was sorry for the pretty frightened little girl was afraid of looking at her and yet felt an irresistible desire to do so A new sensation of comfort and relief came over him when, seeing these girls, he realized the existence of other human interests entirely aloof from his own, and just as legitimate as those that occupied him. Evidently, these girls passionately desired one thing, to carry away and eat those green plums without being caught, and Prince Andrew shared their wish for the success of their enterprise. He could not resist looking at them once more. Believing their danger past, they sprang from their ambush, and, chirruping something in their shrill little voices and holding up their skirts, their bare little sun-born feet scampered merrily and quickly across the meadow-grass. Prince Andrew was somewhat refreshed by having ridden off the dusty high-road along which the troops were moving, but not far from Bald Hills he again came out on the road and overtook his regiment at its halting place by the dam of a small pond. It was past one o'clock. The sun a red ball through the dust burned and scorched his back intolerably through his black coat the dust always hung motionless above the buzz of talk that came from the resting troops there was no wind as he crossed the dam prince andrew smelt the ooze and freshness of the pond he longed to get into that water however dirty it might be and he glanced round at the pool from whence came sounds of shrieks and laughter The small, muddy, green pond had risen visibly more than a foot, flooding the dam, because it was full of the naked white bodies of soldiers, with brick-red hands, necks, and faces, who were splashing about in it. All this naked, white human flesh, laughing and shrieking, floundered about in that dirty pool like carp stuffed into a watering can, and the suggestion of merriment in that floundering mass rendered it specially pathetic. One fair-haired young soldier of the third company whom Prince Andrew knew and who had a strap round the calf of one leg, crossed himself, stepped back to get a good run, and plunged into the water. Another, a dark, non-commissioned officer who was always shaggy, stood up to his waist in the water, joyfully wriggling his muscular figure, and snorted with satisfaction as he poured the water over his head with hands blackened to the wrists. There were sounds of men slapping one another, yelling and puffing, Everywhere on the bank, on the dam, and in the pond, there was healthy, white, muscular flesh. The officer, Timokhin, with his red little nose, standing on the dam, wiping himself with a towel, felt confused at seeing the prince, but made up his mind to address him nevertheless. "'It's very nice, Your Excellency. Wouldn't you like to?' said he. "'It's dirty,' replied Prince Andrew, making a grimace. "'We'll clear it out for you in a minute,' said Timokhin, and, still undressed, ran off to clear the men out of the pond." "'The prince wants to bathe.' "'What prince? "'Ours?' said many voices, and the men were in such haste to clear out that the prince could hardly stop them. He decided that he would rather wash himself with water in the barn. "'Flesh. Bodies. Cannon-father,' he thought, and he looked at his own naked body and shuddered, not from cold but from a sense of disgust and horror he did not himself understand, aroused by the sight of that immense number of bodies splashing about in the dirty pond, on the 7th of August, Prince Bagration wrote as follows from his quarters at Mikhailovna on the Smolensk road. Dear Count Alexis Andreevich, he was writing to Arakyev, but knew that his letter would be read by the Emperor, and therefore weighed every word in it to the best of his ability. I expect the Minister, Barcladetoye, has already reported the abandonment of Smolensk to the enemy. It is pitiable and sad and the whole army is in despair that this most important place has been wantonly abandoned. I, for my part, begged him personally most urgently, and finally wrote him, but nothing would induce him to consent. I swear to you, on my honour, that Napoleon was in such a fix as never before, and might have lost half his army, but could not have taken Smolensk. Our troops fought, and are fighting, as never before.' With fifteen thousand men I held the enemy at bay for thirty-five hours and beat him. But he would not hold out even for fourteen hours. It is disgraceful, a stain on our army, and as for him, he ought, it seems to me, not to live. If he reports that our losses were great, it is not true. Perhaps about four thousand, not more, and not even that. But even were they ten thousand, that's war. But the enemy has lost masses. What would it have cost him to hold out for another two days? They would have had to retire of their own accord, for they had no water for men or horses. He gave me his word he would not retreat, but suddenly sent instructions that he was retiring that night. We cannot fight in this way, or we may soon bring the enemy to Moscow. There is a rumour that you are thinking of peace. God forbid that you should make peace after all our sacrifices and such insane retreats. You would set all Russia against you, and every one of us would feel ashamed to wear the uniform. If it has come to this, we must fight as long as Russia can, and as long as there are men able to stand. One man ought to be in command, and not two. Your minister may perhaps be good as a minister, but as a general he is not merely bad, but execrable. Yet to him is entrusted the fate of our whole country.' I am really frantic with vexation. Forgive my writing boldly. It is clear that the man who advocates the conclusion of a peace, and that the minister should command, the army, does not love our sovereign and desires the ruin of us all. So I write you frankly. Call out the militia, for the minister is leading these visitors after him to Moscow in a most masterly way. The whole army feels great suspicion of the imperial aide-de-camp Wolzogen. He is said to be more Napoleon's man than ours, and he is always advising the minister. I am not merely civil to him, but obey him like a corporal, though I am his senior. This is painful, but, loving my benefactor and sovereign, I submit. Only I am sorry for the Emperor that he entrusts our fine army to such as he. Consider that on our retreat we have lost by fatigue and left in the hospital more than 15,000 men, And had we attacked, this would not have happened. Tell me, for God's sake, what will Russia, our mother Russia, say to our being so frightened? And why are we abandoning our good and gallant fatherland to such rabble and implanting feelings of hatred and shame in all our subjects? What are we scared at? And of whom are we afraid? I am not to blame that the minister is vacillating, a coward, dense, dilatory. And has all bad qualities. The whole army bewails it and calls down curses upon him. Chapter 5